Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Robotics. I'm your host, Nikki Rousseau. I'm the CEO of Robotics Australia Group and we're the peak body for robotics in Australia. It's my absolute pleasure to introduce you to a network member today, Dario Valenza. Dario is the founder of Carbonics. He has a passion for design and design thinking. This is the common thread that has led him to build yachts, planes, cars, and now drones, as well as create the teams and company structures to turn vision into reality. Welcome, Dario. Thanks very much for your support, and thanks for joining me today. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Dora, you've had an absolutely fascinating journey from racing yachts to building drones. Tell us about it. I started out with an interest uh, in the technical challenge of understanding how things work. I guess that's quite quite common to, to most engineers or technical founders. Um, and sailboats just happened to be something that caught my attention early on. Um, and it's this fascination with extracting energy from, from the air effectively. So this is a, a thing, an entity, a boat that can propel itself um, using nothing but the air. So the, the curiosity was, how does it do this? How does it convert this this energy into forward motion? And, and you start looking into, uh, you know, sails that are effectively aerofoils. Uh, how does that then relate to aerodynamics, aeronautics? How do you build a structure that that maximizes the, the efficiency of, of this system to, to extract this energy and, and turn it into forward motion? Uh, and, and exploring that, I, I got exposed to the idea of competition, of, of you know, racing boats. And then you think in that world, you have a formal framework, you have a set of rules that, that limit, say, you know, the length and various other parameters. And within that framework, um, you have to excel and, and be you know, the fastest around a course. And then there are all these compromises that you have to make and factors that you have to consider. Um, and, and I guess what really clicked with that is that there's an objective criteria at, at the end of it, you're either faster or you're slower. And so the fascination was, okay, how do I make this thing better? Uh, how do I get into an environment where there's all this focus and learning and, and experimenting to, to improve this technology for, with a very specific goal and outcome? Um, and then as you start turning that into a career, you start discovering about that there's a whole enabling ecosystem. So you need a team, you need funding, uh, you need the logistics to make it work. Um, you need to not just build the best possible boat, but it's the best possible boat within the time allowed so that you're ready on race day. It has to be usable so that the, the crew sailing has to be able to extract the most out of it. So it's, it's a fascinating microcosm of um, how do you get an idea into reality and how do you then measure it? Uh, how do you get to a, an objective understanding of whether what you've done has, has worked or not? Um, and, and along the way, uh, again, started out very hands-on, uh, found that I, I, I had the design thinking, but also had the, an aptitude for, for making things and actually helping to create, to tune, uh, to, to get, get something around the race course as quickly as possible. Uh, and, and eventually part of that becomes helping out with the, the fundraising and the logistics and um, that then comes down to communicating. So you're saying, okay, I have a passion for this. I want it to happen. Uh, so I want to get a sponsor involved, for example, being able to communicate why this is worthwhile, what the outcome will be, what the benefit is, and actually explaining and articulating uh, the passion to someone who you want to get involved. Um, and, and that I think sort of leads neatly into being a founder and, and the job to convince people that the vision is worth backing. You know, I've picked up on your communication. I was on a, a panel the other day 
talking to postdocs and people thinking of flipping into a career in industry or even going further in academia and we were just discussing you know what you need to do around this and communication typically around engineers and I had a room full of engineers sitting in front of me and I could see um, I was saying to them look you know you have to build up a network of people and you have to be able to communicate and I could just see them going this is not what they signed up for you know but I actually think that's essential is that you can tell the story in your dream and take people along with you on the journey. Yeah. And, and it's, it's almost accidental. Like in, in my case, I was exposed to it out of a need, I guess. And, and just as a, a little anecdote, um, I happened to be chatting to a journalist who was doing the um, TV coverage of the America's cup. And he was preparing uh, a piece that he was going to put to air the next day around a technical solution on one of the boats and he ran it by me to get my opinion about whether it was correct and he was explaining it in a way that made sense and I in turn explained it to him and pointed out oh, maybe you should sort of put it into this context and consider this rule and this is why it ends up looking like that uh, and he turned around and says why don't you come on the show and explain it yourself because you explain it so well <laughs> um, now at the time I couldn't because I was part of a, a, a member of a team you're, you're sort of not allowed to go and do other things but um, later on I did take that opportunity uh, and I, I learned about the, the importance of that. And if you can explain something quite technical in sort of layman's terms um, and get people involved and it sort of generates an interest and an understanding and a fascination that, that then can allow you to share that passion and bring other people on the journey. I think it's crucial and I don't think this is um, I don't think this is just for engineers who typically I would typically I would think they're more introverted people than extroverted but it doesn't mean because you're introverted you can't communicate well it just means you're really selective about when you communicate and I think selling your value proposition um, I went on a startup cohort when when I had my company and they would say to you, you need to be able to explain to someone in 60 seconds what you do, which is a bit of a stretch for me because, you know, that, that's never going to happen, maybe two minutes. But essentially, you need to be able to sell yourself in a clear and concise way that someone could go, okay, I actually get what you're doing. And I always struggled with that. Mm -hmm. I, I think it doesn't come naturally to everyone. And I, even myself, I'd rather be doing the thing than telling people about doing the thing. But yeah. it's it's a it's a necessary part of it, and and you learn about it. Um, and I guess I also don't really think of it as selling. It's more about here's something really cool. Do you want to be a part of it? And explaining why. Yeah. So okay. So we now had a a, a journey. Now you're the founder and initial CEO of Carbonics. Um, then you became the CTO, and now you're a board member. So uh, tell us about how this led from racing to um, starting Carbonics. Uh, what is, and what is your role in the company now? Yeah, okay. So taking first the, the why did you start the company? Um, again, it's an extension of that fascination with, with wanting to, to work on real difficult technical problems that have a real world application. Um, and, and coming out of uh, America's Carp and the various learnings that come from that, um, I became very aware of the importance of data. Uh, and that is you know, things like when we were uh, testing modifications on the boats. Uh, putting pressure taps on on the on the foils to to understand where laminar flow would turn to turbulence. Uh, just getting as many measurements as you can, put, putting sensors on the boat, uh, sailing two boats side by side, and figuring out which one was a little bit faster. That that interrogating a system to get data was so critical because that was the key to winning. Uh, even down to you know getting feedback from the crew, getting uh, you know GPS tracks, uh, aerial video telemetry. All that stuff very neatly leads to 
well, there's a real world application for this. It's not just about, you know, at the end of the day, boat racing is boys playing with toys. Um, is there something that can actually make a difference to the world where, where we can take this uh, understanding of the criticality of data and extend it to an industry where it, there's a big market for it and it will make a difference? Uh, and so aerial data with drones uh, was was a logical extension of that. And putting the two, the two together, uh, knowing that we had um, this technology that could make an airframe light and efficient, that, that could cover the distance, that could carry the payload, um, and applying that to that aerial data piece uh, was really the, the genesis of it. It was like, how can we take this, this thinking, this culture, this knowledge, and this awareness of the criticality of data and make it accessible to industry? Um, so that was the, the genesis of it and the reason and, and started out um, making components out of carbon fiber and, and sort of getting that capability in place. Uh, and initially, you're CEO by default, I guess, as the founder. Um, you do, you're, you're the, the, the top and the bottom of the hierarchy and, and it's, it's all in your head um, and you want to get that out of your head and into the world. Uh, and, and by definition, you have to get some of it in place uh, before you can get anybody else involved because you have to show that you know, there's something real there, there's a commitment, uh, there's a vision, there's a journey, um, and then you start bringing people in to help you realize it. And, and it's not about you know, wanting to employ people or grow, or it's just about getting help to, to do things um, well and quickly. And, uh, and then as the business grows, you realize or you, it becomes necessary to, to get complementary expertise in. So uh, I'm really good at certain things, not so good at others, really bad at others. And yeah. so that complementarity, get, getting other people who are really good at the things that I'm not good at, uh, but who see that there's potential there, who want to be a part of the journey and buy in. Um, and, and that means building the, the team that executes basically so that the technical team first. Then once that was in place, um, again, the, the next step is get someone in who is good at all the delivery and the admin and the day-to-day -day and allow me to concentrate on initially the tech, hence the CTO. Uh, and, and then as that team grows, getting people in who are, are very specialized in the various areas um, within the engineering team. Uh, and that, again, frees up my time to, to do the strategic stuff. So what I concentrate on now is um, the, the longer-term development, so guiding the tech in the direction where I want it to be in the next five, 10 years, uh, working with with partners, with potential investors, with other stakeholders, uh, even with you know regulatory authorities, governments. So really, being the advocate for the business, representing it with various stakeholders, and driving the overall direction without getting in the weeds, so to speak. And how have you handled the transition of all your different roles? I mean, we all like to think we're brilliant and this is just a seamless thing. I'm hoping that's for you. But, you know, I, I think with my company, the mere thought of handing reins over to someone else, I'd just be like, you must be joking. I'm not doing this. But you're obviously more of a man than I in the more than one way <laughs> that you've been able to go, well, I was a CTO, I was a CEO, but, you know, I'm now a board member. Has this been a seamless transition for you? Uh, I guess that the image comes to mind of, of peeling white knuckles off the steering wheel, <laughs> cling, clinging for dear life. Um, I think there's certainly an emotional attachment where the, the, yeah. you know, the, the business is your baby. It's something yeah. that you've nurtured, you're 100% committed to, you've made a lot of sacrifices to get it to a point, and then you have to hand it over to someone else. Yeah. And so that, that handover um, obviously is gradual, like you have to know the person uh, in our case, our current CEO, Philip Vandenberg, 
start, who joined the business uh, following uh, the seed funding round that we did uh, back in 2021. Uh, then he came on as CFO, uh, got across the, the finances and uh, a lot of the strategic stuff that, that then drove the finances uh, and then stepped up to CEO. So he, he knew the business, uh, he'd, he'd proven himself um, you know, 100% faith and, and belief in his abilities uh, and it just was the right fit and it was a time where um, it allowed me to as I said like concentrate on the things that I'm good at and not have to worry about the things that, that before I would have had to do grudgingly yeah. reluctantly but yeah. was a necessary part of, of getting the business to where it is today um, and you, you obviously retain checks and controls and you stay involved and, and you advise uh, but the key is knowing that there's that strategic cultural alignment where the, the whoever you put in charge has to understand where the business has been where it's going why uh, and then coming to the realization that you 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 want the the what to be very clear but you, you have to let go of the how mm. um, so things you know as long as it gets to the agreed result and that's clear if the approach and the actual detailed execution is a little bit different to how I would do it uh, I'm learning to live with that yeah, look, I think it's a great sign of maturity in a person that you're able to do this. And, I've, you know, I watch announcements on LinkedIn of people. I think I saw someone today stepped out of a very active role in the company to be doing something else. And um, I think it's great to be able to, a, and maybe this is not for everyone, that they recognize there are other people that can actually do this job better than mm -hmm. I can. And there are other things that I could be doing that will be adding far more value to mm -hmm. the whole equation but you do you need you need self-awareness and it is a bit of a journey to get there uh, i think that's absolutely true um it's a little bit stepping over your ego and, and saying yes i'm the founder yes it's my vision but ultimately i'm not able to do all of the things that are necessary for the business to go on and that, that's yeah. the definition of scaling like otherwise you're a sole trader if yeah. you're a one-man band and you can be very successful with that but it, it's not a business it's, it's an activity yeah. where you're selling your time and your skills um and the flip side of that actually is that it's 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 actually really touching like it's on a deep level to think that there are people now who are leaders in their field who are very smart very clever very capable have very marketable skills could be off somewhere earning huge salaries and they've decided to to join my little startup and, and to mm. do, you know, to build this vision and to put their time and their career and their reputation behind it. Um, and you have to trust them. You have to give them the opportunity to, to do that, to execute. Um, and, and it's, you know, ultimately it's good because if it works, it means I, I can add value, as you say, in, in the way where I might add the most value uh, and, and they can do their thing. And that the sum of the parts is, is, is greater than the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Yeah. Um, it's just, I, I did come across an article, um, I think it was by, by Harvard, um, a few years back. Uh, they basically summed it up and said, as founder, you have a choice. You can be king or you can be rich. <laughs> you yeah. can remain in charge or you can actually grow and scale and, and, and make, it, um, make it a collaborative effort. There's a bumper sticker in that, Dora, if nothing else works. <laughs> 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 so we were talking about pitching companies and how practice you should be. Pitch carbonics to us. Tell us what you do. Yeah, so um, the short pitch is we provide data capture solutions at scale. Uh, and so that goes back to this, this importance of data. And, and, and there's a, a little bit of a flippant argument we make that our, our product is not the drone. Our product is the data. Mm -hmm. The drone is the tool to acquire it. 
what we do is we design, build, integrate, and operate these remotely piloted aircraft. And we have a very unique set of capabilities in those aircraft uh, to do with the vertical takeoff and landing, which makes them easy to deploy, uh, combined with long range uh, carrying um, significant payloads. So think of a, a high grade surveying LIDAR with a, a very high point accuracy, um, that instrument may weigh five kilos. Um, we can carry that combined with an RGB camera uh, on a platform that you know, fits in the back of the van and deploys vertically, and it can stay in the hour for it can stay in the air for six to eight hours. So that capability means we can cover these either large areas or very long distances, and we are a, a real alternative to something like a helicopter or a, a, a crewed aircraft. Um, and so surveying, surveillance. Uh, that kind of aerial data capture is is really our forte where, where we uh, where we add the value, uh, and and over time we've we've learned that for that to to get to adoption and to get accepted, we need to reduce the various elements of friction, which means uh, even up to the point of providing a, a pilot and an operator, uh, we can train, we can get the permits, we can get the the various beyond visual line of sight uh, exemptions that are required to cover these large areas. And we can deliver the data as a service using our, our platform and our drones. So bushfire mitigation comes to mind immediately when you're talking this. Tell us a little bit about it. Uh, yeah. So again, commercially, there's a bit of triage where you have to focus on the so-called low-hanging fruits. So the the areas where you have high-value customers uh, that have a need right now uh, that commercially makes sense. And and for us, that's linear infrastructure and mining. That's the main focus. Uh, again, we can get into the reasons, but basically uh, an electricity distribution network uh, spread out over large areas. It's in the middle of nowhere. They have a need to, to keep an eye on this infrastructure to make good decisions. They're already spending money with, with crude aircraft uh, and it's not efficient. Uh, the carbon footprint's enormous compared to what we do. Uh, they're sending people out in, in trucks and vans around the country and there are risks associated with that. So there's an immediate value that we can offer in that area, and that's what we're concentrating on being a relatively small team with limited resources. Uh, that's the, the biggest bang for a buck. Um, having said that, there are other applications uh, that, that we see in the future uh, will fit our capability very well, uh, again, where we can add real value, and bushfires are one of them. And there are three elements to the bushfire piece. Uh, there's the prevention, which is really around situational awareness. So uh, scanning the landscape to quantify the fuel load. So to saying how much dry timber is on the ground, where is it? Uh, and that information would then feed into a model that will tell you how likely a fire is to start and how it's going to spread. So that's stuff that you can do, so to speak, in control conditions. You can, you can fly at your leisure to get that information and then feed that into the models. Then the second phase is actually early detection. And that's the stuff that the ANU uh, has been doing with our drone. Um, early detection being, you know, there's a lightning storm and apparently lightning ignitions are a, a significant number of, of bushfire origin stories. Um, so you, you, there's an electrical storm, uh, it subsides, you send out a drone uh, and you look for hotspots. You look for somewhere where a lightning might have struck where there's a smoldering trunk. or um, And so we, we can do that as well. And then the third element is the real-time situational awareness. So that's flying over a fire front and sending video and, and data down to the ground so that um, the various firefighting assets can be deployed efficiently. Uh, now, the first and the second are straightforward. We, we can do those today. 
Um, you can go and do the surveys to ascertain the fuel load. Uh, you can do the storm chasing. Uh, the real-time stuff, uh, there is still some coordination required, particularly if there are helicopters in the air, so there are crewed assets. You need to separate and deconflict, and you need to fit into that emergency response. Uh, and that there's still some, I guess, testing and coordination required to do that, so that's probably the third phase. Uh, but as of today, we have that capability to, to do the fuel load monitoring and the early detection. Which, if you think about uh, Australia's landscape and the habitation we live in, you'd be thinking everyone would be falling over their knees to, to get these solutions up and running or up and flying. <laughs> you'd think so. It's, it's a fairly complex landscape in terms of the different authorities involved and you know, volunteers, professionals. Each state seems to have a slightly different approach, and, and rightly so because they have a different landscape. Um, so, so I think that there's, there's a bit of, I guess, friction. that It's, it's taking longer than, than we'd like. Uh, for that to actually happen, and, and we're pushing for it. Um, on the sort of policy level at the government side, I think there's been a lot of encouragement that there have been, you know, this program that the ANU is doing, uh, there are grants that the New South Wales government has put in place uh, with the bushfire R&D mission. So that initial, I guess, R&D or proving that that work to get this technology out in the field, and it's not, not just us with the drones, it's also um, sort of pole-mounted cameras, uh, various uh image and data analytics plays other forms of detection on the ground. So it's, it's a whole ecosystem. It's not just the drones, but we have experience on, on the drones. And, and again, it's a platform that carries a payload that then gets the data. Um, that side of it, the investment has been made in demonstrating it, uh, in actually putting it in the air, getting the video, showing that it works, showing that it's reliable. Again, literally thousands of hours in the air now doing it. Uh, so yeah, we're, we're ready to go. <laughs> uh, let's see what happens. You mentioned that it's not about the drones, but um, you manufacture your own drones? Correct, yeah. So yeah. We, we do it all in-house. Um, now, as we scale, we, we work with partners uh, to, to help us manufacture at rate. Uh, so at our headquarters uh, here in Atarman, uh, we have prototyping and sort of small production capabilities. So we can build molds, build airframes. We have a curing oven. Uh, we, can, we can develop everything in-house. We can get it to a point where it's, in design freeze and it's all documented and ready to go into rate production. Uh, and then we hand it over to Quickstep. That's an Australian company that, that mainly does uh, composites for defense. Um, and, and they're very keen to uh, have exposure to, to the uncrewed world and hence uh, the partnership with us. Uh, and they're able to scale. So they, they basically take our initial production aircraft and our manufacturing methodology uh, and implement it in a way that they, they can build you know multiple aircraft per, per month and per week. Uh, similarly, on the avionics, uh, we partner with GPC Electronics. That's also an Australian company. Uh, they do the PCBAs, the wiring harnesses, uh, and eventually they'll do some of the installation and assembly. Uh, so again, we prototype it in-house, we develop it and test it, uh, get it to a point where it's ready for rate production, and then we rely on our partners to, to ramp up that production. Um, because again, we're talking aiming for in the order of hundreds of aircraft uh, within the next couple of years. It's music to my ears, all the Australian capability, sovereignty, but of course, you know, you could have a global market as well, and which is probably what you're looking at. Absolutely. The, the USA is really our, our next um, market that we're growing into, and we already have uh, a couple of, a bit of traction over there. We have an operator called Argentech uh, that's flying our systems for, for various missions over there. 
uh, and we've sold to a defense startup called Anduril, uh, who's using our aircraft in within their operations as well. And they, they have a fleet of them now. Um, so certainly the U.S. makes sense because it's very well. Certain states in the U.S. are very similar to um, the Australian landscape in, in terms of being quite spread out, having this uh, sprawling infrastructure that, that needs to be monitored and maintained. Uh, and the regulatory framework is it's not identical, but it's similar because uh, CASA and the FAA are both ICAO affiliated. Um, and so there's definitely obviously commonality of language and things like that. Um, it, it really is our next big market. I read this morning that I think, I don't know how many thousands of acres in California have already burnt out um, or up in flames at the moment. I think this is just a continual uh, reality for for people living with us. We need to be aware of it actually anywhere in the world. You know, I look at South Africa last year, I think Cape Town was on fire for something like four, four months. They, just, they mm. just couldn't get the fires under control. Yeah, I think there's a couple of elements to that. There's the fact that um, I mean, obviously, human settlements are expanding, and so you're getting more of an interface between, say, the bush and the you know, suburbia, uh, and so that there will be more opportunity for fires to actually affect people. Um, but yeah, there is this landscape that, that needs to be managed, um, and, and it's in Australia, in the US. We, we actually, uh, Argentech, the operator over in the US, was called out to the fires in Canada just a few months ago, um, so that that, that fire management is, is a huge market and it's something that, that needs to be addressed. Um, the interesting thing is that some of the power line work that we do is, is tangentially related to bushfires because part of the reason why you want to scan power lines is to make sure that you don't have vegetation encroachment yeah. uh, where you have trees growing into the lines and can potentially spark and cause a fire. Um, so it, it, a lot of it is landscape management and, and again it comes back to information. If you have good awareness of a good picture of what's happening on the ground and, and that's whether it's imagery or a digital twin or a 3d model uh, you can feed that into systems that will then allow efficient decision making for that management how big is your team to 20 people at the moment okay just elaborating that it's um it's quite a complex team in terms of again given that we build the airframe develop the avionics and operate uh, we have streams, and in, in the engineering streams, it does everything from uh, aerodynamics to structural design. Then there's the manufacturing side. There's electronics and software, uh, flight test engineering, uh, and actual operations. And then there's you know the regulatory compliance side, which is quite specialized. Um, and then the, the sort of usual business functions as in BD and um, management. Uh, so it's quite a complex team of very different specializations that all have to work together uh, and and really the aircraft design is a packaging exercise it's, it's the thing that you have to take in the air how do you wrap the most efficient skin around it and get it to all work uh, and get the systems to talk to each other and, and that's really where most of the engineering capability lies okay and are you experiencing um, a labor shortage for yourself that it's difficult to find people or have you got people knocking on your door um, I think we're lucky that we, we have a culture and a reputation that makes us a interesting and desirable place to work. So uh, we do have, uh, like, we never had a shortage of applications. Um, we have had uh, difficulty finding specific skills. Um, so funny, like when we started, there's, there's no such thing as an experienced UAV engineer because the whole thing was new. So yeah. you look at adjacent fields and again, America's Cup, motor racing, medical devices, uh, where you have this like high precision uh, integration requirements. Um, but lately when we are finding that we, we're 
particularly in the US, but internationally, uh, there are skills that, that have developed as experience that, that people have had in similar applications, which we find valuable. Uh, and so we have recently brought in people from overseas uh, with a view to bringing that knowledge into the country and, and teaching it to the rest of our team. Uh, so as long as we cast a wide enough net, uh, it is possible to, to fill the vacancies as we have them. Uh, and we also have very good retention. I think people who are a good fit with our culture tend to stick around. Obviously, and I, it's not you leaving the company, it's you, you're normally leaving a manager. So as soon as <laughs> someone leaves, you go, who's the manager? Why is this your fault? <laughs> <laughs> now, let's talk about money and uh, were you self-funded? And uh, what are some of the lessons you've learned along the way that you could maybe share for other companies? How long do you have? Oh, I just <laughs> said how long. <laughs> uh, initially self-funded. Um, and, and again, it was a very gradual growth in the early stages. And I was using uh, contacts in the marine world to, to subsidize. So we were doing stuff for uh, you know, modifications and upgrades for racing yachts. Um, eventually, I got roped into supplying Team New Zealand in the America's Cup. So I sort of went back to that world. Uh, and that allowed some of the early sort of standing up the manufacturing facility and, and the early team uh, and, and always with the view of, of reinvesting that money into the, the ultimate uh, aerospace application. Um, then we were fortunate enough to win a contract, uh, which is actually for a defense company in Spain of all places, uh, to develop a custom airframe for, for that application. And that was really the first uh, proper exercise in, in developing a drone to a set of requirements. Uh, which, which was that early learning curve and putting those systems in place. Um, then after that, once we were ready to not just build the airframe, but, but do the integration to provide a finished, um, a finished system, uh, at that point, it became necessary to raise capital. So um, I did a seed round and, and brought in some uh, equity, uh, so equity investment. Um, and that then gave rise to sort of the current structure where we, we have raised equity funding, um, and I guess that one of the lessons there is uh, it's not just the money because money is fungible. You can get money from a variety of sources. Um, it's really you're bringing on a partner. If someone, um, as well as the money, you want them to contribute their experience, uh, to be strategically aligned, uh, to understand the, the timeframes and the journey, uh, to be able to give advice as you go w without interfering. Um, and so that that selection is really important, and, and we've been really fortunate that our, our current shareholders are, are wonderful. Um, they they make their experience available to us as required. Uh, they, they help, they support us, and and they again they've bought into the vision. They see where this is going, and and they want to be part of the journey. Congratulations! It's never easy to. Um, what's the saying? The the bedfellows, people you get into bed with. I don't know. There's some <laughs> saying around it. Like you have to be careful. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I guess other lessons, yeah, it's, it's you know, learning what investors look for, what questions they're going to ask uh, at that phase of, of fundraising, uh, as well as identifying that alignment and that fit um, and, and being selective and also raising the minimum amount you can to you know, minimize di dilution and, and to not uh, be tempted to then do too much. Uh, so really do that that step by step. We're going to use the money to do X, Y, and Z. When we get to that, we're going to raise more and then we're going to do this with it uh, and be very deliberate and and comfortable that it's a staged approach and it's not going out and seeking more than you can actually effectively deploy. Talk to me about your biggest challenges that you've had to face on your journey. Um, yeah, so hardware is hard. Yeah. 
<laughs> that's probably the first one. Um, there's early on, it was really about the physical challenge of, of making this thing work. So, uh, which when you look back, you go, well, we're building a plane that's meant to fly itself. How hard could that be? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and we're talking like aviation's only been a thing for just over a hundred years. Uh, and we're talking about flying for, you know, eight hours, carrying five kilos autonomously without human intervention. Um, getting that to all work, finding that the right hardware, the right software, the a user interface that, that is sort of idiot proof and <laughs> reasonably reliable. Um, that, that was really the, the, the hardest part in, in terms of actually getting the tech to where it needs to be get, getting the thing to work, uh, all the troubleshooting and going back to the drawing board and doing three different generations of avionics to make that work. And we were doing it in, in basically a non-existing ecosystem to begin with. Uh, so now, uh, that, Again, the industry has grown. There are different players. There's a supply chain. Uh, there are organizations like Robotics Australia that bring us all together. Uh, there's now something called the AAUS, which is the Australian Association for Uncrewed Systems, um, mm -hmm. where they have an annual get-together. And it's, it's so interesting that year after year, you see the development, you see the industry maturing, you see the players finding a niche and, and getting traction. Um, and so, yeah, that, that initial tech development in in something so new where there wasn't really an analog an analog that wasn't really a supply chain um that was tough uh and deciding what to do in-house and, and what to do with a partner um so again what worth sort of mentioning the the ecosystem that has sprung up particularly in australia uh with companies like advanced navigation that's also a member of robotics australia um they're doing great things in in their niche in um the, the sort of their space um if you look at our aircraft, like the, the electronic speed controllers, the ESCs on our motors, they come from an Australian company called APD, uh, that's also based in Sydney. Uh, our autopilot core comes from Cube Pilot, that's Australian. A lot of the software is done in collaboration with the Ardu Pilot team out of the ANU again, out of Canberra. Uh, we use consultants like Hover UAV that specialize in compliance. We have a partnership with Toll Group that does the, the training. We work with universities. Um, and that there are other suppliers that you know we haven't specifically used yet, but we're talking to like you know Propeller Aero and Ascent Vision Technologies and Karawong. So that that ecosystem has grown up, and it's it's all about collaboration and, and sort of bouncing off each other. Uh, so what you do in house and and what you do with a partner, um, and it's really down to necessity. If if I buy something off the shelf and it doesn't work, I have to make it myself, and that's that's an investment. And it's a whole piece of R and D that you'd rather avoid, but sometimes it's necessary. I was um, going to ask you, what is your greatest achievement? But just that whole um, that whole story now is an achievement in itself that you you basically, I would say 95, 90% is Australian. Absolutely. And, and again, it's not our achievement. That's the industry. Yeah. Um, but to to be able to, you obviously have the, the, the people that wanted it to happen and they persevered and they invested and they grew it. Um, and, and just being able to, to, bounce off that network and have that that assistance means we all have better products as a result and we can all add more value um, to our customers um i yeah. think that i think the achievement is that you can actually choose to use them or not use them and yes. you're choosing to use australian because it's here it may be slightly more there may be price difference differences that you're deciding well you're going to live with it and you're using australian made yeah absolutely um 
I mean, other challenges again, we can go on, but um, <laughs> I'll give us one. Give us one. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think from a founder's perspective, is that it's having to convince the skeptics. So when, when you're doing something new, uh, initially, where it's just, you know, I have this idea for a company, what do you think? And it's like, oh, don't bother. Um, but also customers, uh, where our value proposition is super clear. Like we, we, we can get you this data economically, safely, small carbon footprint. Um, we can increase the frequency of the data. You can fly every week because it's, it's cheaper and more accessible. We can get down low and slow. I, I think that's very easy to get across and, and it's a very clear value proposition and we'd never have a pushback on, on that end of it. But then the implementation, um, particularly where you have stuff that's critical, like you know, power lines and mines where they need something reliable that works day in and day out, that's not going to let them down. And so it's both a challenge and an achievement being able to get them across the line where you'd say, give us a chance, we'll fly, we'll, we'll do a mission, we'll give you the data, we'll show you how it works. Uh, and, and in that, you know, you might have an issue out in the field and you can show that you can overcome it. You can send in a spare airframe, you can assist, you can, so being able to convince the, the skeptics that yes, it's a great idea, but also it's real and it's doable. And, and again, the, the fire stuff is, is similar. It's, yeah, wouldn't it be great to have drones that fly around and, and give us information about fires? Yes, but we're actually doing it. Um, so, so that that transition from yes, it's a great idea to no, look, it actually works. Uh, I think that's the challenge and the achievement. It's being able to show that it's real. You know what? And I think podcasts such as this and media coverage and people telling their stories, like because I mm. think for a lot of people, you know, I talk to them about what's. I get invited to a lot of things, and I talk about what's happening in Australia now. It's not something that's two years, three years. It's now. It's actually it's being implemented here. It, it just doesn't it doesn't mean because you don't know about it, it's not happening. It just means you know <laughs> you're not that well informed. Yeah, and and there's a journey there as well, right? The, the the founder has a vision for the ultimate end state. So I know that in five, ten years time, there'll be thousands of these things flying around. There'll be a remote one to many model where there won't be any human involvement. These things will be out there doing their own thing, um, but it's really important to not just focus on that, but focus on the interim steps uh, to say, we, we've got something today that, you know, whether you call it an MVP or an early stage product, or it's good enough that it can go and do the job. And, and again, good enough means it's reliable. Um, it, it, it can work in weather, all of those things, get that out there, get it proving the concept, and then you can build on it. We have a whole roadmap of feature sets that we want to add and they'll come online over time and, and it'll get better and better. And, the efficiency will increase and the human involvement will decrease and the automation will, will be better. Um, but to hold out until you get to that end point um, means you never actually get to market. And so being able to get that out there now and staging it and bringing the customer on the journey, that's really important. Doria, I'm mindful of your time and I, I'm just also mindful of your absolute wealth of experience. If you could leave a startup with maybe one or two things that they need to look out for, what would you tell them? Yeah, so... I've actually been, been talking to a few, doing a bit of mentoring of other founders and, and I'm finding this need for this advice. Um, one thing is start with the problem, not the solution. So rather than saying, I've got this U-Butte tech, what can we do with it? It's what problem can I solve better than what's, how it's being solved at the moment? So that, that'd be number one. Uh, number two would be open to collaborations and even serendipity, like being open to let's talk to this other companies doing this, where can, where are the synergies? Where can we leverage off each other? Um, and adjusting course as necessary. Uh, and the last one we've already touched on is, is pick your partner selectively, um, value what you're selling to them. So, you know, don't be a beggar, um, but also 
make sure that there's there's a mutual benefit to any partnership and collaboration. Yeah, I think that's fantastic advice. And um, following on from that, if someone wants more advice or your mentorship, or they just want to know more about Carbonics, where's the best place to contact you? Yeah, probably LinkedIn, uh, either through Carbonics or through my personal LinkedIn. And um, otherwise, I can give you my email address. Uh, it's just dario at carbonics.com.au. Fantastic. So to our audience listening, if you want to reach out to Daria, if you're not already following or connected to him on LinkedIn, do so immediately. And if you want to reach out to him, just mention that you heard the podcast and uh, you can use some of his advice. Daria, um, thank you so much, number one, for your time. And um, I just I feel we've got another episode there that we can just unpack <laughs> lessons learned and uh, tips for people going forward. And that may be something that we actually look at uh, going forward. Um, of course, I'm going to be following your journey with uh, lots of scrutiny and uh, I visited your um, office, warehouse, what do we call it, an office. And um, yes, I, I, I think you're doing absolutely fantastic things. Oh, fantastic. Thank you. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. To our audience, thank you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed the episode as much as we did. Wherever you are in the world, take care of yourself and I look forward to your company again. Mm-hmm.